With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Taishin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SubChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup of news and a selection of full stories, plus conversations with reporters and editors from Taishin, China's authority on business and financial news. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Paris. First, our weekly review of business stories from Taishin and beyond. A long-awaited meeting on financial reform is slated for mid-July. Sources told Taishin last week, the cabinet-level meeting held every five years and formally called the National Financial Work Conference will be held by the State Council and will likely focus on improving regulatory oversight of the financial sector and mitigating systemic risk. Past such meetings have often produced policies with far-reaching effects. For instance, the first gathering in 1997 produced a policy to set up asset management companies to absorb toxic assets from the country's big banks. The Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, AIIB, is a step closer to issuing its first bonds after Moody's became the first international credit ratings firm to assign the lender a ranking. The Multilateral Development Bank, which China set up in 2015, said it wants to sell bonds to international investors, but can't do so until it has a credit rating. Moody's announced it has now given the Beijing-based lender its highest rating of AAA, putting it on the same level as the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank and reflecting its view that the AIIB's debt would be of the highest quality and carry minimal risk. Mergers of Chinese-listed companies picked up in June, signaling China may allow more publicly traded firms to improve their quality through consolidation, at least in the near term. Last month, the China Securities Regulatory Commission gave the green light to 24 listed companies to merge, acquire, or restructure their businesses, the highest monthly total since the beginning of the year. French jet manufacturer Airbus says China's state-owned aircraft purchaser has agreed to buy 140 of its aircraft. The sales agreement was signed by company executives during a meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping and German Chancellor Angela Merkel in Berlin. The specific amount involved in the deal was not disclosed. The latest purchase would be worth over $22 billion U.S. at Airbus's current average list prices, but buyers usually receive large discounts on bulk orders of the aircraft. Let's turn now to some of Caixin's reporters to talk to them about the week's top stories. First up is Doug Young, senior editor at Caixin. How are you? So Tencent plays defense in addiction claims over blockbuster game. Unpack this one for us, Doug. Well, the issue or the game, I guess, is called Honor of Kings, and it's taken China by storm. It's operated by Tencent, which is the big internet company. 
and it apparently draws on a lot of their strengths. They're already China's biggest gaming company, and they have this WeChat platform. And the big rage now is team playing online. So it helps people organize into teams, and apparently they can play via WeChat. It's sort of like the perfect storm for gamers. And it's such a perfect storm that apparently people are just getting addicted to this game left and right. And so, what's happened in the last, I guess, in the last week, Tencent has voluntarily, which is always always a little subjective in China, how voluntary is this really? But they've come out and basically rolled out these time playing limits for anyone under eighteen. And the limits are, I believe, it's under thirteen. They can only play hour a day, and they can't play at all after eight at night. And then anybody between thirteen to seventeen can't play for more than two hours a day. And apparently, they've also given parents the power to set up some sort of a system where they can cut off their kids' play at any time. But besides the parents' ability to control the time, Tencent will cut off play itself for certain age demographics. Is that right? Yeah, you play under your registered name. You have like you know your identity or whatever, so you you don't just play anonymously. So it can track pretty easily how long your registered name has been online, and I guess after one hour, it says, "Sorry, your your session has been terminated for the day. Come back tomorrow." We've all heard about video game addiction, especially in China. So, give us a sense of what damage exactly Honor of Kings is wreaking on China's youth. So, for example, there was one extreme, or maybe not so extreme, case that was cited in the media, where youngster in Hangzhou, I guess what ten, twelve years old, actually jumped from a fourth floor apartment window after his dad basically ordered him to stop playing because exams were coming up. And then, don't worry, the kid didn't die. He actually was hospitalized, and apparently, when he woke up two days later, one of the first things he did was demand to have his cell phone back. This is a mobile game, so he could continue playing. Why is Tencent doing this? There was a, a big editorial, actually, a couple of editorials in the People's Daily, which is the mouthpiece of the Communist Party and sort of the one to watch out for. Published two editorials in its online edition, basically criticizing this game. And so that's why I say, when Tencent voluntarily took this action, you always sort of wonder how voluntary was it. Didn't want to be shut down by the regulators, so it took the move voluntarily, but probably under a bit of pressure.、Uh, these two editorials by the People's Daily were not very complimentary. So, where does the game go from here? So, the game is already obviously very, very popular in China, and、uh, they've already started exporting it to Asia, which is pretty par for the course.、Uh, you know, there's a lot of cultural commonalities. But what's interesting in this case is there have just been some reports that they're going to export this game to the U.S. and and Europe. My guess is that it probably won't do nearly as well in the U.S. and Europe. Thanks, Doug. Next up, let's turn to Tanner Brown, who's editor at Caixin. Tanner, you guys have run a story that seems to suggest gay rights in China are taking small steps forward. What's the story? 
In 2015, a woman and some relatives in Hunan forced the woman's husband into a psychiatric hospital because he was gay. At the time, they said he had, quote, sexual preference disorder. The 38-year-old man, his surname is Yu, in hospital was given pills and injections during a 19-day forced admission into the hospital, which was a government-run facility, by the way. He claimed that during his first day at the hospital, workers ridiculed him for being gay and forced him to remove his clothing to, to see whether he was a man or a woman. And he was released again after 19 days, only because police intervened at the request of his boyfriend. He sued the hospital, um, saying it had violated his personal liberty. And so the news this week, now this is almost two years later, was that he has won the lawsuit. Compensation for the damages, it's a bit symbolic, pretty paltry, 5,000 yuan in damages, which is about 700, a little over $700. And the hospital has been required to publicly apologize to him. Regardless, this was a positive ruling generally in the eyes of many gay rights advocates in China. What's the broader landscape of homosexuality as a mental health disorder in China? Homosexuality was removed from a list of mental illnesses in an updated diagnostic manual released by China's big psychiatric association. In, that was in 2011. There was a new law, China's mental health law, which took effect in 2013, making it illegal to force people into psychiatric treatment unless they have harmed or threatened to harm themselves. And actually, in this case with uh, Mr. Yu, the hospital did argue in court that it did nothing wrong because he had shown signs of anxiety and a tendency to harm himself. So they were they were going for that defense. And the court showed that although he did show signs of anxiety, he posed no threat to himself or anyone else. So the hospital had therefore violated his rights. But, you know, an asterisk here is um, the court did not weigh in on the legality of conversion therapy, the attempt to ameliorate, quote, someone's homosexuality or to convert their sexual preference back to heterosexuality. So I guess it's fair to say that although things are getting better, homosexuality remains a stigma for many in China. Exactly. So there are about a very rough estimate of 70 million homosexuals in China which is, if that number is true, it would be about 5% of China's population, about in line with what we find in other countries. And yes, um, many gay people in China are pressured into conversion therapy because of the stigma associated with homosexuality in the society. A 2014 mental health survey of of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and and transgender groups uh, showed that about 10% of the people polled have either sought or considered conversion therapy, mostly from family pressure or not having to live under social pressure to, quote, live a normal life. So there's progress in China, but like many places around the world, still a long way to go. Thanks, Tanner. Great to talk to you. And now for our selection of important stories from Caixin Global for the week. We'll hear about a village official who's fed up with the red tape and the less than cooperative residents who are impeding his efforts to fight poverty. We'll look into an umbrella sharing service that's facing challenges from people just stealing the umbrellas after the startup launched in Nanchang. We'll tell you about how Mobike, another company in China's booming or perhaps bubbly sharing economy, has started selling branded raincoats. And we'll hear how Bread Talk, the Singapore-based bakery you find in just about every Chinese shopping mall you've ever been in, is now expanding with a new joint venture in China and Thailand specializing in spicy pork rib broth. 
from people. Village official fed up with obstacles and fight against poverty. By Huang Shulun and Li Rongde. After three years in charge of poverty relief in a remote village in western China, local official Qin Jie has vowed never to do it again. I will not do this job next year, never, he said. China has taken on an ambitious goal to eradicate poverty by 2020, but Qin's experience on the front lines of this country's battle against impoverishment bodes poorly for its success. In a document released in April 2016, the Communist Party of China and the State Council, the country's cabinet, set a goal to weed out poverty in four years by targeting swaths of the poorest parts of the country. One such place is the vast mountainous area known as Qinba, which covers parts of the northwestern provinces of Shanxi and Gansu, as well as the southwestern province of Sichuan. It was in a small village in Qinba that a Caixin reporter met Qin in mid-June. The official said he was overwhelmed by the demands of the job, which included frequent visits by government inspection teams, among other challenges. I feel like I've just sent off one inspection team leaving in a yellow car when another one arrives in a white van, he told Caixin. Qin, in his 40s, said that dealing with the red tape of poverty reduction has taken up far too much of his day. Those responsibilities include filling out forms that document relief work at the village and coordinating government funds available to farmers, he said. China has had success lifting its people out of poverty. In 2016, the number of people living in the country on less than $1 a day fell by 20% year-on-year to 43.35 million, according to the State Council's leading group office on poverty alleviation and development. Qin's village, locked in a remote mountainous area vulnerable to soil erosion, has little arable land to farm. Rising costs for children's schooling and an exodus of young laborers to cities has also taken a toll. In his village of 434 residents, villagers earned an average annual income of 7,417 yuan, about $1,093 in 2015, far below the national average for farmers of 11,422 yuan. Qin had hoped to use the government poverty relief fund as seed money to plant cash crops or develop small businesses, he said. However, many locals were more interested in how much relief money and goods like cooking oil they could get as handouts. There was even a competition among the local villagers to get on the government dole, Qin said. Some of the families agreed to take the government relief money to grow herbs, but then left the village to work in the city once they got the money, Qin said. And there was nothing he could do about it. Qin said that he has tried to express his frustration at a meeting with officials from higher up in the government. But before I got the chance to speak, the two-hour meeting was filled with praise from the officials about how I had done a good job and other empty words, he said. Business and Tech Umbrella Sharing Service Washed Out by Thieves by Yang Ge Bandits have rained on the parade of an entrepreneurial company hoping to cash in on China's shared economy craze with an umbrella lending service. Half a month after its launch, about 30,000 shared umbrellas targeting consumers who get stuck in the rain have disappeared after being placed outdoors by a service provider in Nanchang, the capital city of eastern China's Jiangxi province, according to the Jiangnan City Daily. 
Despite the rampant long-term borrowing, the company said it intends to keep the business going for now. They all disappeared within a few days of being put out, a shop merchant near one area where umbrellas were placed told the newspaper. They were all taken home by people. Such thievery is becoming a major headache for the wave of shared economy companies springing up across China, where entrepreneurs are setting up services offering items as diverse as umbrellas and basketballs, bicycles, and even traditional cars. One of those companies, shared bike operator 3V Bike, went belly up in the last week as its owner blamed theft as the main reason for his decision. Founder Wu Shengyuan said he forked out 600,000 yuan, or 88,200 U.S. dollars, of his own money for 1,000 bikes that he placed in four different cities, only to see many stolen or hidden by users. Another bike-sharing service called Wukong had gone bust just a week earlier, citing similar problems. But a person who answered the phone for the Nanchang service put a sunny face on the disappearance of all its umbrellas, saying it intended all along for people to take and keep them for extended periods. The service officially requires a deposit of 19 yuan, even though the average cost of an umbrella is more than four times that much, around 90 yuan, the newspaper reported. The umbrella's high cost is due to the lock that each of the service's umbrellas has. Users scan a barcode on each umbrella to get a combination that opens the lock and allows for the umbrella's use. Users are then charged 0.5 yuan per half hour of use. This is exactly what we wanted. Hiding the umbrellas for personal use was our original intent, said the man named Zhao Shuping, who answered the phone at the service provider. There will always come a time when people will forget the code to unlock the umbrella or when the new feeling will lose its freshness and the person may put it back, which will put it back into circulation on the streets. He added that the service hasn't given up by any means and plans to distribute another 5,000 umbrellas in Nanchang this month. From Business and Tech, Mobike Pedals into Fashion by Yang Ge. Peddlers who can't get enough of China's bike-sharing frenzy can now strut one of the leading brands with a rollout of the industry's first swag from sector leader Mobike. The company, which along with Ofo are the clear leaders in the space, has formally launched its first piece of branded gear, a raincoat tailored for riders of its trademark orange and gray bikes with their funky wheel designs and space-age airless tires. The limited-edition black-and-gray poncho-style slickers were going for 238 yuan, $39.40, a pop, according to an advertisement on the website yozan.com, boasting of Mobike's pairing with an independent designer to create the product. As we head into summer, many cities are seeing frequent rain and need to take care when riding bikes outdoors, Mobike said in promotional material with the new product. The Mobike raincoat lets us diversify into our customers' lives, giving riders greater safety, more interest, and fashion. Beijing Mobike Technology Company, Ofo Inc., and about a dozen smaller rivals have taken over major cities throughout China over the last year, placing millions of loner bikes on the streets and sidewalks. On Thursday, Ofo revealed that it plans to add 20 million bikes to its network this year alone, as it disclosed it had just closed a new funding round worth a massive $700 million. But so far, the pair have limited their respective names to actual bikes, which can be opened using smartphone-based apps and then parked anywhere when a user is finished. Total fees are usually small, averaging 1 to 2 yuan per hour, meaning the new swag could provide a significant source of new income. 
a person close to Ofo, confirmed that Mobike's chief rival, known for its own distinctive yellow bikes, has no comparable branded merchandise yet. But she added she isn't worried about competition. Their raincoats are quite unattractive and also very costly, she said. Business and Tech, Singapore Bakery Giant Adds Broth Business to Menu by Coco Fang. The Singaporean food giant Bread Talk is set to launch a restaurant chain in China and Thailand featuring southern Chinese-style pork ribs and broth, as the group has seen their bakery businesses flop as restaurants thrive. Bread Talk Group Limited, the owner of bakery Bread Talk and Food Atrium Food Republic, has set up a joint venture with food maker Songfa Holdings Private Limited to operate Songfa's well-known Bakute restaurants, which serve the highly popular bakute, the fall-off-the-bone pork ribs immersed in a flavorful, spice-infused hot broth. The chain will open in Shanghai during the fourth quarter of this year. Two more restaurants will land in Thailand in 2018, followed by three others in the Chinese cities of Beijing, Guangzhou, and Shenzhen. Although Bread Talk is a bakery giant that runs more than 800 outlets across Asia, it saw revenue generated by its bakery division decline 3% to $73.6 million U.S. million in the first quarter, primarily due to lower China franchise revenue contributions. In addition, the profit of the company's restaurant businesses jumped 25% to $6 million U.S. in the first quarter, while the bakery division's profit fell 11% to $1.7 million U.S. during the same period. From 1999 and 2013, the bakery market in China experienced a fast-growing golden era with 18.6% average annual growth, according to consultancy Zhiyan. Since 2014, however, growth has slowed to around 11%. Competition has grown fierce as many rival brands operating in China, such as With Wheat and 85 Degrees Celsius, have become extremely popular. And competition from Bakute restaurants is likely to heat up as well. A popular chain named Old Street Bakute is set to expand into China this year, Singapore newspaper Lianhe Zaobao reported. On Wednesday, shares of Singapore-listed bread talk dropped 0.33% to 1.5 Singapore dollars or 1.08 U.S. dollars. That's this week's show. Thanks for joining us. Drop me an email at kaiser at subchina.com with your feedback. The Caixin Seneca Business Brief is powered by SubChina and produced, recorded, and edited by Kaiser Guo with stories by the staff of Caixin Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Li Xin and Tanner Brown of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Ufei for the music. Be sure to check out the Seneca Podcast, the current affairs show I host with Jeremy Goldcorn, and follow the news from China every day at SubChina. Sign up for our free email newsletter at subchina.com and take care.